Um, thank you, band. It's really good to uh, just be in the Lord's presence. Um, and thank you, Megan. It is such a blessing to be in this building. I mean, every time we walk in here, I am just a little bit in awe of the thing that the Lord has given us uh, in this place, which is just really, really special, uh, right when we needed it. And so um, I'm going to start off, we're going to start off pretty heavy this morning. I want to ask um, a relatively reflective question. Um, and again, we don't normally start off this way, but uh, who, um, who day? <laughs> huh? How about the Bengals? I know this isn't like a crazy fanatic sports church. Some of us uh, follow certain things, but what a week in sports, because not only did the Bengals win, but we have any Purdue fans out there, Purdue grads? Great. I, th I thought I loved this church. Uh, my Hoosiers took down the number four Purdue Boilermakers this year, or this week. <clears throat> so um, guys, we can't miss this morning. It has just been a really, really good week. Praise the Lord. Uh, so before Catherine and I uh, moved here, and a lot of you guys know this, we uh, lived in Las Vegas. So we're from Indiana, but we moved to Las Vegas. There was kind of something stirring in us at one point of, you know, what if one day there's this team, this group of people dreaming about what if one day we planted a church? And so the rationale was I should probably work for one before we started one. And so that's why we moved to Vegas where there was a professor of a university, a seminary, that had planted a church in Las Vegas, and uh, he had started not only a church, but a school of ministry, an outreach center, a house of prayer, and um, it was incredible. And I remember, like, as we were thinking about what would be good preparation if someday we did plant a church, um, that was like the no-brainer. And so we uh, moved to Vegas, um, and we stayed there for four years. Um, and the reason we moved there primarily was to kind of learn from this guy. And the big thing that he... Uh, was doing was he uh, not only started this church, but the first thing that they started was a house of prayer. And I remember when we first moved there, I was 24, and this was a church. It was a new church, but a bunch of missionaries, uh, like young adults, had moved there from this seminary. And, uh, and I was 24, and I was one of the older people on staff. I mean, it was crazy. It was this professor and then a bunch of kids running this church, house of prayer, all of this. And, and so one of the things he tasked me with, like, a couple, week, or a couple months into being there, because I was the only one that had a non-Bible um, undergrad degree, I had a business degree, and he's like, hey, we need a new place to meet. Uh, we're kind of outgrowing our house of prayer. We're outgrowing the church offices because we were renting a school, so we didn't have a, a permanent place. He said, would you help me find a place? And so um, it was really fun. I, like, got my first, you know, experience in real estate, started looking at buildings, found, like, the perfect place, I thought, and so we get there, and there's offices downstairs, and then there's this large open room upstairs. And it's, so it's me and Pastor Dave. We're walking through it. I'm just being a good, like, number two, feeling like I'm really uh, affecting this church. And we're walking through it with the owner, who was, like, a guy in his mid-30s, a devout Jewish man, and his mom. And I remember we turned a corner. We're, like, just doing the walkthrough. It's a done deal that we're going to sign on this place. We're doing the walkthrough, and we turn a corner on the outside of the building, and we hadn't seen that side of the wall yet, and there was just a really big, like, graffiti sign, uh, like a gang had tagged the building, and uh, I could tell that they weren't hoping we would see this, but we turned the corner, we saw that, 
and the lady, uh, the mom, was like, hey, I'm so sorry. Um, look, we've worked with the city. We've worked with uh, the police. This just keeps happening. And don't worry, we're going to take care of it. Every time it happens, call us. We're going to paint over it. But um, there's nothing we can do. Like, this just keeps happening on this building. I don't know why. And before I could, like, say, oh, that's fine, because that wasn't going to be a deal breaker for us. Um, before I could say that, Pastor Dave looked at her, a man of very little emotion, and just said this, like, so matter-of-factly. He's like, that's okay. That'll go away once we're here for a little bit. And, um, and I had no idea what he was talking about. I, at that point especially, was way more suburb than city, so I'm like, I'm not doing security here. Like, you're going to have to figure this out yourself. And, uh, but like a good number two, I just sat there and I nodded like I understood completely what he was talking about. And they leave, um, and it was a very, it feels like a very Jesus and Peter moment where I'm like, hey, when you said this, what did you mean by that? And he said, oh, when we start to pray here regularly, stuff like that won't happen anymore. He said that this, this whole area is going to change specifically like those gangs aren't going, there's going to be something in them that's not going to allow them or they won't want to tag this building anymore, which sounded really crazy. And, and when we moved in, there was a fresh like spray paint tag on the building. And, and what we did, what our house of prayer was, was every morning um, for an hour and a half, we would pray and worship. Like that was part of my job description is every morning I was in the prayer room for an hour and a half. Our whole staff was... And we prayed, like, a lot. It was one of the things I loved most about that church is we were praying all the time. And we started to do just our normal house of prayer in there. We were the only house of prayer in the city of Las Vegas. And for every, about every week, that building had been tagged um, leading up to that for a few years. And the building was never tagged again. Like, nothing, ever, like, no one ever, we never had to clean up any spray paint. And there wasn't, like, we didn't meet the gangs and negotiate with them. We never actually met anyone from that, like, who was doing that. There wasn't a shortage of spray paint in the city of Las Vegas. It simply was, it seems, like he was correct in saying that, like, when people start to pray in a place, it actually affects more than just the place, but the area around it. And, and theologically, I knew prayer was a big deal. That was one of the first times I experienced prayer to be like, oh, this actually like does something. And, um, and I got to have many, many more stories from that place of, oh, prayer really does something. There was one time we were praying um, for the, uh, just the sex trafficking industry uh, out in Vegas, because that's obviously a big deal. And we're literally praying um, for prodigals to come home, specifically prostitutes, to find their way back um, to Jesus and to freedom, to be delivered out of um, the trafficking industry. And as we're praying, a prostitute knocks on the door and says, I heard that you guys might be a place that could help me get out. Literally, as we're praying in that room, a prostitute knocks on the door and says, would you help me get out? And so we, we weren't actually people that could help her get out, but we connected her with places that could, and she, three years later, I remember she was still living in California, totally out of the sex industry, because it seems like, and I could be wrong, but it seems like prayer actually does something. And so um, this morning, we're just talking about prayer. And, uh, and this is a little bit difficult for me, because sometimes I get to preach on things that I'm like, man, follow me as I follow Christ, like Paul said that. And this is not an area of my life currently that I would say like, I got this locked down. So I have been very convicted in the last couple weeks in preparing 
for this message because I've experienced a prayerful life and I would say like my prayer life currently has been maintaining the status quo. I am praying. I am not praying as much as I would like to be. And so there's my disclaimer. If you're coming in like, man, I'm just not doing what you're telling us uh, Jesus is asking us to do, like that's okay. I feel that and I do want to do better. Uh, And here's why we pray. Here's why this is fitting into a revival series is because a life of prayer is a life that creates peace. When we started praying in that building, in that upper room, it not only created peace in the room, but it created peace in the literal geographical area around us. And so a life of prayer is a life that creates peace. Also, a life of prayer is a life that carries power. It's this strange dichotomy where we can both carry peace. And so if there's a lack of peace in your life, um, try prayer, try sitting and communing with God. And if there's not uh, the change around the world or around your world that you want to see, try prayer. Because prayer carries both an incredible peace and incredible power. And uh, so we're in the middle of a series uh, called As It Is in Heaven. The whole goal of this is we're pursuing revival. And I've heard about revival all the time. Uh, We really pursued it in previous lifetimes that I've lived. And sometimes it's like, oh, revival's around every corner. And we're after, like, what would it really look like if revival started in Cincinnati? But then the other thing is, what would it look like if revival actually started in me? Because uh, in order for something to revive, it has to have been alive. And so revival doesn't start outside the church, but revival often starts inside the church, and it often starts with a group of people that are committed deeply to prayer. So we're going to be in Matthew 6. This is where uh, we've been a lot of this series because Jesus is teaching on the kingdom of heaven. He's uh, doing his most famous sermon, the, the Sermon on the Mount. And in Matthew 6, it'll be on the screens, and there's also Bibles in front of you in the pew. Uh, Matthew 6, verse 5, it says, And when you pray, so right off the bat, there is an assumption that Jesus' followers are praying. It's not if you pray, but he says, And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen, then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And, and I don't know if you've heard this phrase before, a prayer closet. Uh, this is kind of where that idea comes from. But where's the place, super practically, where's the place that you meet with the Lord? And it doesn't have to be the same place every time, but there's something that is evoked in me when I see um, my little rocking chair in our guest room. That's my place right now. Uh, when I had an hour commute, it used to be the front seat, the driver's seat of my Honda Civic. And there's always this place that this is like the place that I proverbially or, um, or literally shut the door. Is there a place uh, in your home, in your car, in your workplace, which might be weird, um, that you are proverbially getting to shut the door and be alone with Jesus? And then the big verse, as he goes on and he keeps talking about prayer, the big verse that we've been honing in on is then he teaches us how to pray. And in Matthew 6, Uh, Verse 9, it says, this then is how you should pray. And so this is the Lord's prayer. He's opening up like his secret sauce to how he communes with the Father. And the first thing he says is, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. So it actually starts with worship. And then the very first thing he tells us to ask for is your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Which is a really similar invitation of, of seeing earth look more like heaven. That's a really similar invitation that God gave 
in the midst of creation in Genesis 1. So Genesis 1, 27, as God's still creating mankind, it says, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And so there was an invitation at the very beginning, pre-fall, pre-fruit, all of that, where God says, I want you to take chaos and I want you to make order out of that. And he even uses the language subdue. I want you to subdue the earth. I want you to rule over the earth, which is very different than strip mining or polluting, but there's some kind of like stewardship that's associated with us and the planet. And then after the fall, the new covenant, the covenant that Jesus came to introduce, he's saying the exact same thing. Guys, there is, there is a, a part of uh, the world, actually it's called heaven, and that's where God's will is always done. And then there is this place, earth, that God's will is sometimes done. And the crazy invitation that God gives to us is you have the opportunity to pull down a little bit of heaven onto earth. I mean, one day it's going to be completely overlapped, but until that moment, we have the strange, crazy, insane opportunity to actually partner with God in pulling bits of heaven down into earth. It seems like God actually gives us authority or influence over his place. And so God's original invitation, Jesus is just playing off of that in the new covenant, but God's original invitation to us was to rule, reign, co-labor, and create with him. His original invitation was actually inviting us into influence. And, uh, and it's one of the craziest passages in the Bible, Exodus 32. Uh, there's an instance where Moses is doing the very thing that he's invited into. He's interceding between God and man. And so Moses, this is right after, uh, if you've heard that passage, it's right after the golden, or I'm sorry, it's right after the, the Exodus, the Red Sea has been split, and Moses goes up on a mountain, and he's talking with God. He's getting the law from God. And while in his absence, um, they decide Israel in classic Israel fashion, uh, we should, like, make, a, make an idol. Like, I think that's what God would want us to do. We should make an idol, and we should worship it. And so Moses is up on the mountain. He doesn't know what's going on. And so they get lost without a little bit of leadership. And so they, they create a golden calf so that they could worship it. And this is literally in the midst of God saying, here's how I want you to interact uh, with uh, my people. Here's the law that I want to give you. Here's how they're going to become more of my people. And in verse 8 of uh, Exodus 32, God changes his tone, and he says, Moses, just go back down. Go back down to the mountain. Go down to your people. God always refers to Israel as his people, but he says, I want you to go back down to your people because they have become corrupt. And uh, parents, I see you do this all the time when your kids are misbehaving. That's her side of the family. We don't we don't do that. That right there, that's reflecting his, I mean, that's his mom, actually. What that, that little tirade right there. And so it's just, it's nothing new under the sun. You're just pulling out a playbook from God's uh, playbook, or a page from God's playbook in Exodus 32, where God says, look, Moses, these are now your people. And so I want you to go down there. And God goes further, and he says, I have seen these people. They are a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone, Moses. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. It's tough to read. And then I will make you into a great nation. And so Moses is kind of offered a promotion, like, I'm going to get rid of them, but I love you, Moses, and I'm going to stick with you. He says, then I'm going to make you into a great nation. But Moses sought favor with the Lord. 
Moses actually starts to, if you could even go this far, like starts to argue with God. It says, Moses sought favor with the Lord his God. Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people, whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? And Moses has the audacity, or the chutzpah, to like actually argue with God and say, no, no, I don't think that that's right. I, I, I know you're moving in this direction, but I want to see this happen with our people, with your people. And I would say this potentially is the craziest verse in the whole Bible. Exodus 32, 14, it says, Then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. Uh, maybe one of your translations might say something different. It says the Lord changed his mind, which is crazy to me. And, uh, and this, is like, this is tough for me to grasp. I'm like a huge fan of authority. I like my God like I like my puppet masters. Like, tell me what to do. Just lead me. You're bigger. You're stronger. You're smarter. I totally can fall in line with a God who just tells me what to do. And it seems like God actually invites us into influencing the world with him. Aristotle described the world, or he described God as an unmoved mover, and as smart as he was, that doesn't seem to be correct. It seems like God is actually a loving father who loves to interact and even potentially be influenced by his kids. John Mark Comer says that there's a time for us to, to open up our hands and say, God, your will be done. Like, whatever you want to do, your will be done. And then there are specific times that we intercede on behalf of God on behalf of man to God, and say, God, this is not the way that it should be. God, would you bring justice to this situation? God, would you bring justice to these people? God, would you do something in this world because that's not the way that it should be? Uh, Karl Barth, he's a theologian, he calls this a characteristic, the holy mutability of God, where God is holy and big and smart and, and wonderful, yet he has the ability to be influenced through primarily our means of prayer. It's crazy. Blaise Pascal, mathematician, I promised last philosopher, uh, he says this, and this is like nerd out if you're a philosophy major. He says, God has instituted prayer so as to confer upon his creatures the dignity of being causes. It's deep. Sky Jathani, not a philosopher, uh, talks about that quote and simplifies it a little bit. And he says, We are not merely passive set pieces in a prearranged cosmic drama, but we are active participants with God in the writing, directing, design, and action that unfolds. Prayer, therefore, is much more than asking God for this or that outcome. It is drawing into communion with him and there taking our privileged role as his people. In prayer, we are invited to join him in directing the course of this world. God is a good father, and like any good father, he loves to hear from his people. He loves to hear from his children. He is like intimately involved with the desires of our heart, and God, simply put, loves to give us good things. Like any good father, he loves to give his children good things, yet also like any good father, he doesn't give us everything we ask for. That's a disaster. Watch Aladdin. Never turns out well. He has the wisdom to at times say, no, 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 that's actually not for your good. And we often get hung up on the unanswered prayers, and by we, I mean I. I'm so often hung up on the prayers that God hasn't answered that I haven't actually thought much about the unasked prayers. 
And I wonder what would influence the world more, the prayers that God hasn't answered from me or the prayers I haven't even asked, and therefore the world hasn't been shaped because of my unasking. And so God, a good father, loves to be influenced by his kids, which begs the question, and I hope I've sold you, biblically, theologically, philosophically, that prayer is a big deal. Uh, But then it begs the question, what does a good prayer life look like? Or what does a healthy prayer life look like? And classic God, there is no equation. Um, Mine will look different than yours, and yours will look different than the person next to you. But it seems like that there are two primary factors in uh, what like a good, living, breathing, intimate prayer life with God would look like. And the first one is uh, communion with him. Just being with God. So it's not like you're running through your list. It's uh, like any good friendship, right? You're just with them. You're communing with God and you're interceding to God on behalf of his creation. So a healthy prayer life looks like spending time with God, but not just spending time with him, but also interceding on behalf of his creation. How can we, in Moses' fashion, stand between things that are not as they should be or things that need to change and God, the only one who has the ability to change them? And if I'm guessing, because I know this is true of me, if I'm guessing, there's probably one of those two that you feel a little more drawn to. And, and I'm surprised, actually. I'm type A, majored in business. I thought for sure like this would be my thing, but I actually... Uh, love just commuting with God. And I really struggle with the intercession part. Maybe you're the opposite. Um, there was a moment, there was a few weeks, uh, where we did this, you know, house of prayer every single morning when we were out there. And there was a season of like a few weeks or a month where we got really into like soaking. Does anybody know the like soaking term in prayer culture? You put on like wordless music, you turn the lights down. Maybe you lay down instead of sit or stand. It's the only time in prayer where you're, like, encouraged to fall asleep because that means you're really, like, in the presence of the Lord. And um, maybe through just, like, a season of tiredness or my poor leadership, but we just soaked a lot in the house of prayer for a month and because that's just my thing. Like, man, I could do that all day. And then, like, three, four weeks in, it's like, have we prayed for anything? Like, <laughs> is Vegas changing because of us? And, uh, but maybe you're like the exact opposite where you're like, gosh, I don't know the last time I've just sat and listened to God, but you're so good. Like you might be like an intercessor. If people are always asking you, Hey, would you pray for this? Or if you've got like a list of 50 things you're praying through, or you're keeping track of the answered prayers like that. I mean, there's people in our church. I know for sure that just have the gift or the, almost like the office of an intercessor. And so you're probably drawn to one or the other. Is it the communion with God that comes easy, or is it the the moving through a prayer list and really going after it uh, with the Lord for change in his creation? But just ask yourself this question, is there one that's really difficult for me? Or is there a way that I'd like to see uh, my prayer life grow? And I know for me, it's specifically in the, like, how am I asking God to change things? How is the world or my world changing around me? Because God gives me this incredible ability to influence him. God, uh, in prayer, gives us both access to peace and power. Uh, Martin Luther, he, somebody asked him one time, hey, what are you doing tomorrow? Or asked, like, what his plan for the next day was. And he said, um, work, work, until early until late. In fact, I have so much to do that I shall spend my first three hours in prayer. 
Luther was famous for praying two hours every morning, but in moments of busyness, he would decide he needed to pray three because that was the best use of his time. That is the opposite of what I do. (laughs) It's been a busy season the last few months in my life, and I found my temptation is to pray less. But one of the heroes of our faith says that as he gets busier, he found himself praying more, which actually does make sense because he's inviting God to multiply his time and multiply his wisdom into the things he does after that. Um, I think that we sit in this building uh, mostly because of intercessors, people that were praying for something long before it was a need. And so we're sitting in here, one, because of generosity that churches and uh, this church has given faithfully. And so when the opportunity came, we got to write a check, uh, a really small check for this wonderful building. It's crazy. Um, we had great negotiation and, um, and factors that kind of played into this and experts from uh, Louisville that were helping us with this negotiation. Both of those are reasons we have this building. But the primary reason we sit in here is because long before we needed a building, while we still had a one-year lease at Shakespeare and everything was going fine and I was totally comfortable and at peace with the place that we were, there was a team of people on Monday nights praying that God would give us a building. And then we needed a building in a moment. And we all started to pray. I started to pray. That's when I started to pray for a building. And I believe that this opportunity, which, again, is way too much of a building for way too little of money, came into our lap because we had been seeding the ground. A team of people had been seeding the ground for this place. Guys, pastors affect the world for sure and affect the church. Worship leaders affect the culture of a church. But I believe that it's intercessors. I believe specifically that it's uh, God's people that really pray that actually change the course of history. And you can point back to almost every revival is a revival that started with a move of prayer. So this is in your notes, um, and there is no answer to this. I want you to wrestle through this. I want my prayer life to blank. And you can write that down now if you know what it is. And think about it this afternoon. What is God stirring in your communion with him, in your interceding on behalf of his creation? Where do you want your prayer life to change? For me, I want my prayer life, I've made 2022 my goal to pray more this year than any other year that I've lived. And, um, and so I want to pray more, and I want to pray more for things. Again, soak all day. But I want to be someone that when you ask me to pray, like, oh, yeah, let me write that down. Let me pray for it now. I'm going to pray for it tomorrow morning. I want to be that kind of person that uh, is so deeply committed to prayer. But maybe that's not yours. So what in your life, in your prayer life, is something that you want to move towards? Because, and I usually stay away from absolutes, but every revival that we can look back to has been a revival that was started or sustained by a move of prayer. And uh, Pastor Dave, the guy in Vegas, used to say this all the time, because we just loved the Church of Acts. I want to be like the Church of Acts. And he would always remind us, the Church of Acts prayed a lot. And he would say, if you want what they had, you have to do what they did. And I think the same goes for revival. If we want what they had, we have to do what they did. And that's both convicting and it should be freeing, that like we actually are invited in to changing the course of a city through prayer. Uh, in 1722, there was a guy, uh, I don't, you probably haven't heard of him, his name's Count Zinzendorf. Um, Count's not literally his first name, it's some kind of title back then in Germany. Um, 
His first name was really long, but everyone called him Count Zinzendorf, 1722. He was a 22-year-old guy, incredibly wealthy aristocrat. And at 22, as one does when they're 22, he bought his grandma's estate of like thousands of acres in a little village called Hernhut, Germany. And uh, Count Zinzendorf bought this estate, and he was a, a man deeply committed to Jesus. He had decided from an early age he wanted to follow Jesus. And so he, um, at that same time, he bought this little, well, this large estate in this little village. Uh, at the same time, there was some kind of war going on just beyond Germany, and it was in Moravia. And so all of these Moravian Christians were fleeing. There was like a refugee crisis. And, uh, and so Zinzendorf took in one of them uh, because he had the room, and very quickly he took in 300 of them because he had the room. And there was almost this little Christian village that started uh, in Hernhut, Germany, around Zinzendorf. And one of the things that they decided to do, this is, you know, people in their 20s, is we're going to be deeply committed to following God. And, and a, re- a revival comes from this, but it started actually with a group of friends covenanting to do life together. They called it the brotherly agreement. It was men and women. But they, they said, we're going to pursue God with everything we have. We're going to study the word together. We're going to pray together. We're going to go after God, and we're going to covenant to do it in friendship, not in some institution, or we're not just going to do it out there. We're going to actually covenant through friendship and relationship to pursue God with everything that we have. And they did this for a few years, and they ended up doing an all-night prayer meeting uh, sometime in August of 1727. And uh, they prayed throughout the whole night, and the presence of God dropped in that place. I mean, they just like all kinds of crazy things happened as they were praying through the night of, uh, I think it was August 12th. And so a couple weeks later, they said, we need to do that again. They felt like they like found the secret sauce. So they, uh, 24 men, 24 women said, let's do this again, but let's do it for longer than just one night. What if we did it for, you know, a couple weeks? And so they agreed two by two. We're going to pray one hour a day together in this place. They had like a little chapel. We're going to pray together in this place, and we're going to pray 24-7. And it was the birthplace of 24-7 prayer. It's not IHOP in Kansas City. It started in Hernhut, Germany. And, uh, and so they start to pray, and a week goes by, and two weeks go by. They prayed 24-7 for not months, but 110 years. It's the longest prayer movement that's ever happened. They prayed 24-7 for 110 years, and it's called the Moravian Revival. And uh, and you maybe haven't heard of it because it was a move of prayer, but it also was a move of humility. And so these 300 Moravians of their little community sent out 70 missionaries in the first few years of praying for revival and serving the city uh, and serving the place that they were. And they sent out people to preach the gospel to unreached people groups, and they started planting churches literally all over the world. And one of the churches that they started ended up sending out 200 more missionaries, most of whom sold themselves into slavery. It was in Africa, and they sold themselves into different slave camps to better identify with slaves and to share the gospel with them. And you can read about revivals that were taking place, not just in big cities, but in slave camps all throughout Africa because of one move of prayer that they said, our lives are not our own. We're going to sell ourselves to identify with other people and bring the gospel of Jesus to them. It's one of the craziest revivals that you've probably never heard of because every time they would plant a church, they would give it away 
to the city that they were in or give it away. And most uh, scholars estimate this would be the largest denomination in the world if simply the Moravians had kept the churches that they planted. A revival started and ended up affecting the whole world. And here's the last thing I'll say about prayer, <clears throat> is prayer is, uh, only makes sense through a lens of humility. Prayer is such a powerful thing, but it only makes sense through the lens of humility. Prayer likely will not make you famous. Prayer likely will not make me famous. Being uh, a really good, having a really healthy prayer life likely isn't something that's going to get you on the news, but it is the deepest and most impactful way to, to change the world. Uh, one of the things Zinzendorf would say, kind of his motto that he's famous for, and this is intense, so beware, uh, in his kind of life calling, he said, I want to preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. Not that his goal was to die, but in dying, the goal of the Moravians was to be forgotten because it was never about them. Prayer only makes sense through the lens of humility. Uh, the band can come back up, and we're going to worship and um, I want us to consider what would a life of prayer really look like. We know that a life of prayer is one that carries deep peace. It carries deep power. It can influence the world. It reflects the rhythms of Jesus. But prayer also um, is a life of humility, probably obscurity, most likely delayed gratification. You don't always see the fruit of something that you're praying for. And what was convicting to me um, as I was preparing is I could name like 10, 15, 20 pastors that I'm listening to or that are famous. I could name 15, 20 churches that, you know, we could model ourselves off of them. But I could not name one single other Moravian. And yet they affected the whole world. The prayer movement that they started uh, likely has affected one of the churches you grew up in, potentially affected this church being started in 1890. The Moravians, through simply prayer and humility, affected the whole world, but I couldn't name one single Moravian because they actually got what they wanted. They preached the gospel, everyone from that prayer movement is dead, and now we have basically forgotten their names. Yet they changed the world through one simple act of prayer. And revival and prayer are inextricably linked. And so if we're after revival, what we're really after is a full, meaningful, deep, intimate life of prayer. And so um, the question that I've been wrestling with, truly been wrestling with, is do we want to be a church that is committed to prayer? And specifically, do I want to be a person that's committed to prayer? Uh, and of course, the answer is yes, but then when I think, am I willing to pay the cost of what it entails? So God, we ask that you, um, God, we ask for your conviction, but Lord, we also ask for your peace. God, we know that you never shame us. And so if there's shame around our prayer lives right now, we just say no to that in Jesus' name. And God, we ask that we would be people who pray and commit ourselves to communion, communing and interceding with you. And Father, in the midst of prayer, let it bring us great joy. It's not a burden to follow you, and it's not a burden to talk to you. And so, God, would you create a fire in us, and would you raise up intercessors from among our church? And finally, Lord, we do pray. We pray for a touch of heaven. We pray for revival in this place. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.